We're going to dive right into the text this morning, Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, this is Jesus dictating a letter to his apostle John, who's functioning as a scribe. Jesus says, these things says the first and the last, who is dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Again, in, in way of introduction, in case you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, there are four ways, four different ways, that you can read each of these seven letters. Seven ways you can view them, a few ways you can view them. The reason that's important is the totality of which helps us unpack the essence of what Jesus is saying. First, and just a quick recap, there is no question Jesus was writing to an actual church located in each of these ancient cities. As such, a first century context of each locality is 100% necessary. Secondly, we also understand that in writing to seven churches, Jesus is seeking to relay a message to every church throughout all time. A letter addressed to one church was to be disseminated, we're even told by the text, throughout the churches. What this means is that within the substance of each of these letters, and this letter to the church of Smyrna, we find an interesting word from Jesus to our church, Calvary 316. Thirdly, in choosing these specific seven, it's not just that there were seven, but specifically these seven, we also note that Jesus was writing to the universal church. With each of these letters addressing a specific movement within church history, in totality, the totality of these seven letters put together in compilation, we know that Jesus is addressing his church, the church that began on the day of Pentecost and continues through today to whenever he calls her home. Lastly, aside from all of these things, the admonition at the end of each letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, individualizes each letter as well as its application. Within each of these seven, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is seeking to communicate a message to you and to me. Now, before we get into the specifics of this letter, I'd like to make one additional observation that hit me this week as I was thinking about these letters. You know, each of the seven is addressed to, again, a single angel, which we know to be a passenger, a messenger, of a singular church. So a single angel to a singular church located in each of these cities. The letters then close, what? He was in here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Singular angel, singular church, they close, plural, multiple churches. While it's true that each letter sent to a church contained a message for all churches. The interesting framework here of the letters themselves may give us some insight, I think, this was the thought I had this week, 
as to how these ancient churches may have been practically uh, structured or formed. You know, in ancient times, it was impossible for a large church, like the church of Smyrna, to congregate at the same time in the same physical location. There just weren't buildings big enough that they could congregate in. In fact, we know that the church predominantly met in many houses. You see, the truth is the church, singular of Smyrna, was likely comprised of smaller, plural, churches. Which then may explain why a letter to the church closes with an application for the churches. It could be that he's talking about all of the churches that make up this one church. It's a thought. And yet, note, from Jesus' perspective, and I find this to be interesting, there were still one church made up of multiple churches overseen by one pastor. That's kind of the framework. And the reason I bring this up, not to spend a lot of time on it, <coughs> but there is a movement within Christianity called the, the, church, the home church movement. And it's risen predominantly in order to decentralize church governance and kind of the hierarchy of authority. All the while claiming, by the way, I think somewhat pretentiously, to be more like the original church in Acts. That being said, this letter, like the way that these letters are structured, one pastor over one church made up of multiple locations, kind of, well, it challenges their premise. You can take it, chew on it. That's a freebie. Either way, don't forget, between the introduction, right, between the close, Jesus, and I'll repeat this throughout it, who will condemn the things he finds condemnable, and the letters he will con uh, commend the things he finds commendable. He will also emphasize a relevant aspect of his person, established in chapter 1, in light of the things he's talking about, before finally providing each of these churches the necessary instructions, warnings, and promises, if warranted. Like we did with Jesus' letter to the Ephesians last Sunday, let's begin by establishing a profile of this ancient city of Smyrna. Smyrna was located on the western coast of what is present-day Turkey, about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Uniquely, Smyrna still exists today as the town of Ishmir. Turkey, if you don't know anything of it, is predominantly Muslim, but Ishmir, ironically, still has a large contingency of Christians, a Christian population. In a sense, the church of Smyrna still exists. In ancient times, Smyrna was known as the crown of Asia, or the jewel of the Roman Empire. Uh, regionally, Smyrna was the second most prosperous city behind Ephesus. Not only did Smyrna, like Ephesus, have a strategic harbor, but the city possessed straight, wide roads that was ideal for the transportation of, of goods. You couple that with the fact that Smyrna was located and surrounded by fertile farmland, they produced wine, they produced myrrh, particularly. Wide roads, good port, was easy to move it across the empire. Truth, the, the word Smyrna derives itself from the term myrrh, this word myrrh. So the city of Smyrna, as you can imagine, was wealthy and influential. In spite of her Hellenistic roots, notable that the poet Homer was born in Smyrna, seeing, perceiving, 
the inevitable fall of Greece. Smyrna was unique in that she was one of the first of the Hellenistic cities to pledge her loyalties to the rapidly expanding Roman Empire. In 195 BC, Smyrna cemented this alliance, this relationship, by building a massive temple that was dedicated to what was known as the Spirit of Rome. It was a gesture, a token. Now, with this decision, Smyrna would historically, moving forward, be at the center, the forefront, of what was known as the imperial Roman cult. By the time of Jesus, what had started as a patriotic celebration of Rome, something patriotic, had morphed in the deification and worship of of former Caesars. By the end of the first century, logic only dictated that the same adulation now be applied if you're going to worship deceased Caesars, you might as well worship living ones. Within Smyrna, the temple, originally built to celebrate the spirit of Rome, was retrofitted for the active worship of Caesar himself. I mentioned in our initial study that while Nero had instigated the first wave of Christian persecution, it was not until Domitian's reign that Christian persecution reached a zenith. In fact, it was on account of the second wave that the Apostle John here in the book of Revelation finds himself exiled to the island of Patmos, a prison island. In contrast to the random, often ill-advised persecution strategized by a madman, a.k.a. Nero, Domitian was different because he proved to be dangerous in that he was deliberate in his persecution and very systematic in his approach. He targeted, as an example, church leaders to alienate the Christian community. Domitian did something else. He instituted, he became the first Caesar to demand worship. No longer was it an option. It was now to be seen as a test of loyalty, allegiance to Rome. During Domitian's reign, when John is writing in this city of Smyrna, failure to comply with Caesar worship would bring about its severe economic consequences and in many instances even execution. Scottish historian and theologian William Barclay, he wrote of this period. Let me read it for you. He says, quote, Emperor worship had begun as a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. But towards the end of the first century, in the days of Domitian, the final step was taken and Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, everyone was required to, quote, burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. All that the Christian had to do was burn that pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Receive their certificate and go away and worship as they pleased. But that is precisely what the Christians would not do. They would give no man the name Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. When you examine this period of history, you will see that while many cities throughout the Roman Empire chose not to enforce this mandate strictly, Because of her long history of loyalty to Rome, Smyrna, the city of Smyrna, took Domitian's edicts very seriously. When Jesus writes this letter to these believers in Smyrna, the city had become ground zero for Caesar worship. Now, broadly speaking, we understand that this specific letter to the church of Smyrna, that 
his exhortation here is what we would refer to historically. So what does Smyrna represent historically? She represents the persecuted church. Scholars will debate when this time period actually began. Some will say it began uh, uh, earlier than 100 A.D. Some say it was 100 A.D. Some argue later. They all seem to agree, though, that it came to a definitive end. So this period of persecution came to an end when Constantine issued what was known as the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D., formally legalizing Christian practices within the Roman Empire. We'll, We'll actually get into that in the next letter to Pergamos. Personally, I don't like that classification, and and I'll explain. The idea that that it was only this period that represents the persecuted church is problematic. Because beginning with the apostles and continuing all the way to today, there has always been a remnant within the church in some part of the world enduring some form of serious religious persecution. Pastor David Guzik makes this observation. He says, nevertheless, the day of martyrs is definitely not past. All over the world, Christians face persecution, especially in Asia and Eastern Europe and in the Muslim world. Some people estimate that more Christians have suffered and died for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. If you're going on just pure numbers, the last hundred years has seen more martyrs than the first hundred years. If you're interested in learning more about Christian persecution, what's taking place today across the world, I've included at the bottom of the page that you are following the notes with on c316.tv a couple links to some websites that you can look, explore these things, learn about it a little bit more on your own. We are living in a really gnarly day where we have the opportunity to worship, but in, in crazy totalitarian places like North Korea, in, in Afghanistan, Uh, horrible places like California, you're not allowed to to congregate and worship freely. You should learn about our brothers and sisters across the world, those in New Jersey. My point is that there is no doubt Jesus is writing, yes, to a local church. A local church in the city of Smyrna during the first century. A church that was experiencing real and terrible persecution. And then in a much broader sense, this letter, it should be seen as Jesus' admonition to the faithful remnant that is ever-present throughout church history, enduring Christian persecution. This isn't a letter of exhortation to any church experiencing uh, persecution for their faith. Now, like he does with his letter to the church of Ephesus, Jesus now begins by providing the church in Smyrna a profound commendation Some good things going on in light of her present circumstances. He says in verse 9, look again. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In line with what we know about the political climate at the time in Smyrna, as well as the period of persecution this church represents, Jesus acknowledges here at the beginning, he says, I know, I know, I know I am aware of your tribulation and your poverty. In the Greek, this word tribulation referred to the the pressing together from outside influences. Like the word was used to describe a technique 
in which a large stone was used to crush grapes, to release juices that would be made for wine, or to crush, to press an herb so that it would release a fragrant oil. Again, what you would do with myrrh. It's not an accident. Using this word tribulation, pressing, crushing, this is something that would have resonated in Smyrna. They knew it. They were agriculturally developed, pressing, crushing grapes and wine. As we've noted, an environment in Smyrna had created this set of now crushing circumstances. These believers were being pressed. The tribulation they were uh, enduring had, had created a dynamic where a decision to stand for Jesus, to stand on religious conviction, carried with it a tangible, practical, severe consequence. Which is why, in light of that, this tribulation, Jesus says, I, I also know of your poverty. I know of your, this pressing, this crushing, but I know of what's resulting, this poverty. Again, in the Greek, this, this doesn't mean that they were poor. It implies an abject destitution. The word can be translated into English as beggary. It spoke of having nothing at all. You see, in Smyrna, refusing to offer that pinch of incense and declare Caesar is Lord, in effect pledging one's loyalty to Rome, immediately resulted in an intense form of economic persecution. Because of their stand for Jesus and their refusal to compromise their faith, these Christians would be refused a very important piece of paper. We know historically it was known as the Certificate of Compliance. Without that document, you were no longer allowed to participate in the public marketplace. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't work. Your private property was confiscated. Any bank accounts closed. Your membership to the very powerful trade guilds was revoked. Your money Whatever you had, if you refused to, to offer this pinch of incense, if you refused to declare Caesar as Lord, if you couldn't get this certificate, your money, the money you had, the money you had in savings, it was worthless. It didn't matter. You see, no one was allowed to buy or to sell to someone that didn't have this certificate. You see, in Smyrna, their stand for Jesus, their refusal to obey the laws of the land, in turn made these believers outlaws. Amazingly, if their tribulation and poverty weren't enough, Jesus adds, he says, I also know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I don't think I'd ever want to be a member of the synagogue of Satan. Can't be a good place. It's a very, they have a very terrible hospitality ministry. The word we have translated blasphemy it means to speak against one's good name for the very specific purpose of causing injury. Again, in our English, a better word would be slander. And we define slander as the act of making a deliberately false statement in order to damage a person's good reputation, to slander someone. Like in addition to the pressing and the crushing that these Christians were experiencing from the state, they were also being slandered and lied about in their community by a group Jesus calls. They say they're Jews. They're not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Well, practically, we understand that Jesus is, is referencing an actual synagogue located in Smyrna. 
led by Jews who were spreading lies and falsehoods about these Christians. In a much broader application, we also understand that Jesus is speaking of the persecution of his faithful church by those who would claim to know and represent God, but didn't. Again, this is a point I could, I could hammer home and spend a lot of time on, but I, I could sum it up with just a statement. How interesting that if you study history, Christian persecution, most of the time, has manifested viciously from whom? Fake Christians. Religious people who claim to represent God, but don't. And if you disagree, they'll burn you at the stake, or they'll behead you. Just look at the way history has played out. Here's a church experiencing unimaginable hardship. And yet it's also clear that they refuse to allow these trying circumstances to deter them from their heavenly calling. Again, look, in spite of their tribulation and poverty and slander, the things that they were enduring, Jesus begins the entire section by saying what? He acknowledges their works or their Christian service and the context of what they were going through. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus gave his disciples, he gave us, a really challenging exhortation. <laughs> and I mean really challenging. Like this is not an optional thing. This is something that Jesus gives to us. You ready for it? This is the bone to chew on. Jesus commanded you and I, he says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. You know, it's evident that this church in Smyrna and the larger persecuted church she represented possessed a, a lasting legacy of also being a serving church. As she's being pressed and crushed and persecuted, she served. There's a story of a church leader during this time period by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was an elderly man when, again, he was asked to offer the pinch of incense, and he refused. So he goes home, and there was a, a warrant issued for his arrest to be brought into the Colosseum there, paraded in front of the audience, given another opportunity or face execution. Polycarp, the Soldiers come, as the story's told. They knocked on the door, and he opened. He didn't run. He says, you're here to arrest me. They're like, yes. And he says, well, you boys look hungry. Would you like to eat? So they looked at him odd, strange. They're like, well, we are hungry. So they come in, and they sit around this elderly man's table. He made them breakfast. They got done eating. He says, well, is it time to go? They said, yes. So they led him to the Colosseum, and they begged him. Just offer the pinch of incense and you'll be, you, it'll be fine. But he refused. They were going to feed him to the lions, but it was the Jews who introduced a new idea of persecution, of execution. They said, let's burn him at the stake. So they brought out all the wood. And they went to nail Polycarp's hands to the post above his head. And, and, and again, as the legend goes, he says, there's no need for that. I'm not going anywhere. And so he stood there as they lit the fire around. And as he died, he sang praises to Jesus. Again, that's somebody that under, to bless those who persecute you. 
to love your enemy. I, if you're like me, you, you hear a story like that, and you're like, nope, <laughs> not doing it. I pray that if the time were to come, that God would grant us the grace to behave in the same manner. Smyrna, this church, commendation, good thing. They were serving in the midst of persecution. Between Jesus' commendation and his counsel, which we're about to get to, you should note that this letter is unique in in the fact that Jesus has nothing to criticize this church for. There are no criticisms. He only seeks to encourage. Now, speaking from personal experience, I have found that often in the midst of our own persecution, trial, temptation, discouragement, pain, depression, and suffering, you know, it's easy in the moment to wonder. In the quietness of the night, when you're alone, Jesus, have you forgotten about me? And I think that's only natural. It's only honest that in the middle of great pain and suffering and trial and persecution and depression, it's like, Jesus, I know you love me, but I don't feel loved right now. As if our circumstances have been allowed to come in by stealth. Jesus, don't you know? And yet Jesus combats that very idea with two powerful words. In fact, I think they're the most two powerful words of the letter. Something you should circle, underline, highlight, put a gold star by it. Jesus says in the context of their tribulation and their poverty, he says, I am shocked. No. He says, I know. I know. The word here, idio in the Greek, it's unique. The word no. It's unique because it, smo- it spoke more than just like, you know, the perception that you might get by sight or the accumulation of knowledge, like to know because, well, I've just learned about it. This word idio, instead, it, it, it spoke to a practical understanding that can only be derived from a personal experiencing. You see, Jesus is not just telling these Christians that he knew somehow intellectually or he could see their suffering. He's saying something deeper. He's saying, I know, I can sympathize with your suffering from firsthand personal experience. I know, I sense. Again, if we're being honest this morning, these two words in the presence of our suffering, I know, is only meaningful if the person who's making that statement has actually gone through a similar experience. Wasn't it the most annoying thing in high school or college when your girlfriend broke up with you and like your whole world was crashed and it was always that guy who had the most perfect relationship since like elementary school with the girl and he's the one trying to comfort you. Hey man, I just know, man, this stinks. Like you don't know nothing, man. Like you've never gone through it. The last time you rejected, it was like a note you sent in second grade, circle yes or no. Like, that's the extent of your personal experience. Like, it's irritating, isn't it, when someone who doesn't know wants to know. You know, one of the most amazing things about Christianity is that it does not present for us a God somehow perched like the others above the human experience. Instead, Christianity presents for us a God who left the perch of heaven specifically to experience fully 
what it was like to be human. You know, as a result of this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 presents Jesus as a high priest for us who we're told can sympathize with our weaknesses. And Christian, please understand, like this word sympathize, it's very similar to I know. It's not just intellectual. To sympathize means to be affected by the same feeling as another. Yeah, it's from this Greek word that we derive the English to resonate. You might not know, but if you have two tuning forks, let's say they're in the key of C, and I were to hand one over to Neil on the far side of the room, and I were to take mine, and I were to hit it, I mean bang it, ring it, you know what would happen to, to, to Neil's? Because they're tuned the same, his would immediately start moving. That's what this word sympathize it literally means. Like, do you understand that when your heart gets dinged, the heart of Jesus begins to ring because he has experienced all that we have experienced? You see, the sympathy of Jesus to our plight in its biblical context, its construct, is more about his experiential understanding than his intellectual awareness. Think of this contrast between the I know as an exercise of the head to the I know being a way to describe the moving of Jesus' heart to the things that we experience each and every day. When life stinks, Jesus is in heaven saying, I know, I know. Jesus can say with authority, I know your tribulation. Why? He experienced the same crushing, the weight of tribulation himself. Jesus can say, I know your poverty. Because according to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. Jesus can say, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. He can say that. Because he personally experienced the slander of those who claim to represent God, but instead crucified their Messiah. He knows. And beyond all those things, Jesus can say with authority, I must say, I know the pain that's felt when you're betrayed by a friend. You ever been betrayed? Or rejected by someone that you love dearly. Jesus can say, I know what that's like. I know. I know that pain. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer the loss of a loved one. He knows. He's been there. He wept at the tomb of his best friend. Jesus knew what it was like to be misunderstood. He knew what it was like to be tempted, to be treated unfairly. Jesus can even say that I know what it's like to feel as though God has forsaken me. I know. And on the cross, in the midst of his suffering, Jesus asked the same question we often do, don't we, in ours? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When your faith is in crisis, Jesus can say, I know, I know. And yet being able to say, I know what it's like, ends up being rather meaningless. If the same person can't also say, I know how to overcome. The Christian, Jesus can say all of these things with the complete authority of I know, because there is no part of our pilgrimage he hasn't successfully navigated. Jesus is the victor. 
over all you might face. John 16, verse 33, he says, I have spoken these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. It's not an accident that before Jesus even utters the words, I know. He first reminds this church of what? He reminds them in a very subtle way who he is and what he's done. Again, that, that, that's important for someone to say I know and have credibility. Again, look, he opens the letter. These things says, and then he describes himself how? As the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Again, intentional references back to the original revelation of himself to John in chapter 1. This phrase, the first and the last, spoke of Jesus' divine nature, his timelessness, his complete sovereignty. Why is that important? My friends, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of persecution, it's critical that you remember Jesus is more than just a mere man. He is the most high, sovereign God of the universe and total control over every aspect of your life. Your life might feel out of control. It's not. So you have to step back and think, why? Well, he also says, who was dead of himself and came back to life. Speaking of his power. I'm not just the first and the last. I was dead and came back to life. I have power. The reason you can trust me over whatever it is, I have power over the most daunting of all human enemies. Like the one thing, the grand reaper, I have power over it. I have power over death, death itself. You see, in his resurrection, Jesus affirms once and for all that he is the overcomer because he defeated our greatest foe. So in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your persecution, it is crucial that you remember Jesus, he's not just a sovereign God, but he is much mightier than anything you're facing. Because he overcame death. Now, before we take time to apply all of these things to our lives, let's first address, in kind of some context, Jesus' counsel to Smyrna and the persecuted church. So let's set it in that context, and then we'll get to the application for us. Well, Jesus reminded them of who he is. He's the sovereign victorious God who experientially knows before giving them practical counsel in verse 10 Jesus does something important in verse 10 he reminds them of four key realities concerning persecution let's go through them quickly first Jesus is it's clear that persecution is inevitable like in this letter to a church that's already suffering, Jesus is brutally honest concerning the outlook of their future circumstances. So they're in trial, they're in tribulation, they're in persecution. Jesus comes, yes, we get a letter from Jesus. This is awesome. This will be, oh, he's the overcomer. He's the first and last. He overcame death. This is going to be good. And then what does Jesus say? <laughs> Look at the kid. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Wait, wait, what? Like, th there would have been a collective gasp. Like, there's more? Indeed, the devil is, is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. You will have all future tense, tribulation 10 days. 
It's interesting that Jesus never promises the persecuted church deliverance from persecution, but the exact opposite. He promises more. Like he warns this church. I, I, guys, I know it's bad. I know, right? I know. It's okay. It's going to get worse. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. It's a real pep talk there, bud. Guys, I know we're, we're at halftime. That first half was, whoo! Second one's going to be just as bad. Let's go get them. You know, I mean, that's like the, the ring to it. Never forget, and I think this is the point, that trials and persecution are an unavoidable, inescapable part of the Christian experience. I would make the argument it's part of the human experience. I don't think anybody escapes it. Everybody experiences pain and suffering. You're not excluded. I guess that's the point. Augustine, he once said, and I like this, he said, God has but one son without sin, but none without suffering. It's true. If you don't believe me, let me just take a quick moment. I, I want to, I wanna, on kind of this real low note, like I want to give you some encouragement. Okay? I, I want to try to pump you up a little bit about the future. Here we go. Here's some passages that you can highlight and memorize. Commit to memory. You'll like them. John 15, verse 20. Jesus says, remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Yeah, I'll, I'll circle that one. Uh, James 1, verses 2 and 3. Account it all joy when you, face, when you fall into various trials. When, not if. Ugh. 2 Timothy 3, 12, that's a winner. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, that's me, will suffer persecution. Philippians 1.29, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, beloved, which is a good way to start, my friends, people I love, do not think that it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing is happening to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. I could go on and on and on. In fact, with the exception of the book of Jude, every single New Testament author spoke of persecution. Aside from the fact that Christian persecution is inevitable, the second thing Jesus says is that persecution has a, has a purpose. So it's inescapable, but it, there's a point to it. Jesus adds, look at it. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that, what, you may be tested. Though Jesus is honest that the origin of the coming persecution would be the devil, his foreknowledge of the event to come in the future reveals a really challenging idea, his allowance. He knows it's coming. He knows whom it's coming through. He doesn't say he's going to help. He's, he's going to allow it. That's the implication. Jesus is clear that he would allow the devil to throw some of them into prison. Why? For the purpose that they may be tested. And admittedly, when you run across this English translation of tested, like how it's presented, that's, that's odd, and it's kind of a, a strange forming. Like the word in the Greek doesn't, doesn't mean to test like we think of it, like to take a test. Rather, the word means to make trial of. Like, 
God's purpose in allowing persecution wasn't to test their faith in the sense that he's trying to, to learn how up to snuff their, their faith is. Like a test. That's not what's happening. Jesus knows. Instead, it's to create a dynamic whereby their faith would be put on trial or demonstrated publicly for the world to see. That's what the idea means. While Satan wanted to crush their witness, this persecution would be allowed by Jesus because he knew the Master, our Savior, he knew their persecution would actually have the counter result. It would amplify their witness and their community. What Satan meant to destroy them would in turn magnify the power of what God was doing. You know, historically, persecution has always resulted in a more powerful church. It has always had a positive impact on Christianity. You know, persecution, and we've kind of seen some of this over the last several months, persecution of the church tends to purge the church of pretenders, as well as galvanize the church to her purpose. It's been said a church experiencing the fire of persecution, right, think about it, naturally becomes a church on fire. (laughs) And you know what happens when the church is on fire? She sets the world ablaze. You see, they're crushing tribulation. When you crush the herb, what results? A wonderful fragrance. Famed preacher Charles Spurgeon, he, he said this, and it's gnarly. He said, Never did the church so much prosper and truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. (laughs) Heavy, right? If anything illustrates for us how outward appearances can be deceiving. The church of Smyrna probably tops the list. Practically, the church, as we've noted, had nothing. Right? They were, it was poverty. And yet Jesus affirms what? She had everything. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. You have nothing but you have everything. But you are rich. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This was a church storing up treasure in the right place, in heaven. And by the way, when we talk about treasure, I've noted this before, but I'll reiterate. When we talk about treasure, yes, there are actual treasures rewards given in heaven for various things on earth, faithfulness, the crown of life, etc. These things, by the way, we don't keep. These are the things we're given, and then out of grace and the magnitude, we, we give them right back. So what is our treasure? What are the two things you can take to heaven? Your memories and your friends. You can take your friends to heaven if they know Jesus, and you can take the memories you make with them if they know Jesus. What a practical rebuke. Here, I know your poverty. You got nothing. But you're rich. 
Like, what a rebuke to those who present human pain and suffering and persecution or the lack of material possessions, what we would say health and wealth, as being the sole evidence of God's displeasure or one's lack of faith. If, 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 if you're not prospering, well, then God's against you. Not with Smyrna. They had nothing, but they had everything. One commentator observed that the contrast between material poverty and spiritual riches of the Christians in Smyrna reminds us that there is nothing inherently spiritual in being rich. I would also add in being poor. How dangerous it is when we fall into the deceitful trap that measures the effectiveness of a Christian or a church by only using the bottom line, the bank account. Christian persecution, it's inevitable and it's intentional. But thirdly, notice that persecution also has an expiration date. Jesus says you will have tribulation only to then add that it would last for just 10 days. And there are all different types of theories about what he means by 10 days. Again, there are some that say these 10 days are 10 waves. And in fact, there were 10 waves of Roman persecution. The problem with that is that by the time that this letter is going to Smyrna, two of those, one of the waves is over, the one by, by Nero. The second wave we're in the middle of, Domitian. That seems a little odd. There are some that will say, well, this is an actual 10-day period of, of some persecution that would happen in Smyrna. Might be. We just don't have any history of it. Some people will say, you know, that this is some type of 10 eras, bygones, whatnot. I have a different perspective, I think of a more simplistic one. And that is the idea that this word 10 days is more of an idiom. It's a phrase. It's an expression of speech that doesn't actually have anything to do with 10 or days, but just spoke of a defined period of time. Again, running out of time, you can refer to other instances in the Bible that it, 10 days is used in this way. Genesis 24, verse 55, Job 19, verse 3, Daniel 1, verse 12. There's examples of 10 days not being 10 days, but just a defined period of time. That's what it means. What's important is that while Jesus does promise to the Christian persecution is inevitable and that there's an intention, he always promises that is not indefinite. There will be a day, friend, that the persecution is over. Finally, Persecution has a reward. Matthew 5, Jesus promised, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. There is a reward. In this letter, we're given a little bit more specifics to what the reward is. He says, I will give you the crown of life. And he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The Bible describes two deaths. This is important to point out. The Bible describes a physical death, and it describes a spiritual death. While it's true that everyone will experience the death of the physical body, <laughs> we, we feel it every day, don't we? The death of the mortal man. The same, though, can't be said for the second death. D.L. Moody, famous preacher, he summed it up this way, and he really can't say it in a better way. He says, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Friend, if Jesus is your Savior, if you've accepted His atonement for your sins, 
if you've been made alive through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the reality is you will only die once because you've been promised the crown of life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. And yet, if you reject Jesus as your Savior, choosing to instead provide your own atonement for sin, following your physical death, number one, will come a spiritual death, number two, as you spend eternity paying off a debt that your imperfect offering can never, ever satisfy. That's why it lasts forever. Again, the wages of sin is death. Practically, Jesus is reminding this church that no matter how bad it gets on earth, eternal life is our destiny. It is our future. This is why he, he counsels. He says, do not fear. Don't, don't fear. Be faithful unto death. This command, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. It literally means, bro, stop being afraid. <laughs> I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Yeah, it's going to get worse. Don't freak out. Don't be afraid. Fear. No fear, if you really think about it, is fundamentally born, it's birthed out of the anticipation of loss. Like you fear something if there is connected to it a sense of, I might lose something of value. That's why people fear coronavirus. They fear it. Because they're afraid of losing something of value. And that's, that's rational. That's appropriate. Fear. But in light of that, you have to consider, don't you? For the Christian, what do we really have to be afraid about? Like, Jesus would say, don't fear. You know, that's the number one command in all through Scripture. Don't fear. Fear not. Number one, throughout all the Bible. Most common exhortation of God to humanity. Don't freak out. Don't fear. Why? Because if you believe in him, you can't lose a thing. What do you have to lose? Like, what can the world take from you when your destiny is eternity? You see, we can be faithful until death. Because death is not the moment of any loss for you and I. It's the moment of incredible gain and unspeakable glory. The Apostle Paul he sums up his own life this way in Philippians 1, verse 2. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It was an equation. It was very logical. It's literally, the thing I'm living for, I want to make sure I get more of in death. That's what he's saying. If you say, to live is my bank account, to die is not more of your bank account. You don't take any of it with you. It doesn't work. If you're like, to live is to be famous. That's why I've got an Instagram account and Twitter. I want to be known. That, okay, that's cool. To die is not more. I hate to break it to you. Three generations, no one even remembers your name. Think about your great-great-grandparents. Do you know their names? And you're related to them. Right? To live is fill in the blank. To die should be more of what I'm living for. Why Paul says to live? Oh, that's Christ. Why? Because when I die, I get more of the thing I centered my entire life around. That's logical. That makes sense. Yields more of Jesus. So we're running out of time. What does Jesus say to us? So let's take this whole letter and let's bring it to us. I don't want to get too predictive. There is a coming persecution of the church in America. You can sense it. Winds have shifted. Storm clouds are gathering. A storm is heading our way. I believe that. I hope I'm wrong. 
What's interesting is like Smyrna, the coming persecution you and I will face to stand on our convictions and follow Jesus will probably be economic. You know, the Bill of Rights protects the freedom of speech and religion, but it doesn't seem to apply to the freedom of religious conviction voicing itself in the public square. We are free to believe what we want in our culture as long as our beliefs stay within the four walls of the church building or our homes if we can't go to that church building. As a perfect example of of this, anything other than the full celebration in our culture of homosexuality and gay marriage, that's classified in our public square as hate speech and bigotry. Man, I don't care what you want to do. I don't hate you. I love you. I'm not trying to take your freedoms. Well, do you celebrate? I don't know. I'm going to celebrate. I kind of disagree with it, but that's okay. Like we can agree to disagree agreeably. Like that's okay. No, you're a bigot. You're hateful. Wait, what? Like, how do we get to that leap? You know, it's interesting. I did a little research and Justice Kennedy's opinion on the case legalizing gay marriage. He acknowledged in light of the law, the logical need for, quote, religious organizations and persons to be given proper protection. Even the court knew what would happen. I don't want to beat a dead horse dead but the sad truth i'll sum it up this way is that we live in a cult a country that has greater protections for the freedoms of internet pornographers than the private individuals who desire to operate a business consistent with their christian conviction and values that's a problem my point is in the coming years regardless of who wins the next election social trends indicate man a decision to stand for jesus a decision to not bend the knee when it comes to your Christian beliefs will cost you something. And you know what? I say, bring it. Bring it on. Like nothing brings about a quicker revival of the church of Jesus Christ than when the heat gets turned up, the church is purged of fakers, and we can get serious again about our calling in this world. So if it takes persecution, so be it. The church won't go down. Aside from this, there's also undeniable and a profound exhortation for those who are suffering. If this is you, while suffering may be inevitable, please know it's not indefinite. Revelation 21 verse 4, we're told that a day will come when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Amen and amen. That is the destiny. And while a future promise doesn't exactly alleviate anything you might be presently experiencing, you can hold fast to the reality, whatever you're going through. Yes, it's been allowed, but it's been allowed by God for a purpose. You know, the truth is sweet wine demands the pressing of grapes. There's no other way to get to it. Pleasant fragrance of myrrh is only released when an herb is crushed. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, we're told that for our light affliction, which is just for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Christian, never forget. (laughs) The glory of the resurrection first demanded the suffering of a cross. It was the only path. Lastly, if you're in the storm this morning, I want you to take courage, knowing (laughs) Jesus knows. Whether it's tribulation or persecution or trial or poverty, 
slander. Maybe you're going through slander this morning. Someone's saying bad things about you behind your back. Or betrayal or rejection or a loss or a temptation. Maybe even the sinking feeling that God has forsaken you and you don't know why. And you're struggling with the real emotions of faith. This morning and this letter, Jesus does have a word for you. And don't miss it. I know what you're going through. And I know how to help you through to the other side. He knows both. Jesus is in total control. He's completely able. And as the psalmist says in chapter 46, verse 1, Jesus is more than willing to be your, quote, refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So this morning, may he or she who has an ear You have two, so you're doubly accountable. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we thank you for your word, Jesus.